Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Pod. I'm Simon Mabon, and today I'm joined by Professor Gerasimos Sorapas. Gerasimos is Professor of International Relations at the University of Glasgow and the Chair of the Ethnicity, Nationalism and Migration Studies section of the ISA. He does some fascinating work on the IR of the Middle East and the broader global south, and he's done amazing work on the politics of migrants, refugees and diasporas. He has essentially become a research superstar with a number of significant and impressive grants under his belt and currently in operation, including a five-year European Research Council starting grant project on migration diplomacy. He's won countless awards. He's published in huge numbers of prestigious journals and with globally recognized presses. His latest book, Migration Diplomacy in the Middle East and North Africa, Power, Mobility and the State, was published by Manchester University Press in 2021. And I'm absolutely delighted that he is here with us today. Gerasimos, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Simon. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. It's a real pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this and trying desperately to dissect all of the incredible work that you've been doing and all the many projects that you are doing You're at too kind. the moment. So um, I guess I've used up quite a lot of the time on the introduction, but that's only scratched the surface of everything that you're doing, really. Um, before we delve into that and and try and get a get a handle on all the things that you're doing... Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into the sort of the areas that you're interested in, the broad IR of the Middle East and the Global South, migration, refugees, diasporas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yes, absolutely. Well, I, I, I always enjoy listening to, to people's responses to such a question because it's it's always, for me, it's always been a bit of, of luck and happenstance and and choices that we make that you 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 would never imagine that they actually lead to things that matter in the future. So um, I, I like how people always try to essentially contextualize things, make sense of something quite random, and, and find a trajectory that that makes logical uh, kind of sense. But um, for me, I think together with with luck, it, it has to do with perhaps uh, growing up at a specific time and, and place. So I, sure. I, I was born and raised in, in Greece, uh, uh, northern Greece, uh, very near uh, Salonika, which is the, uh, the major Ottoman-era port city, right, at the, the mm-hmm. crossroads of, of cultures and, and, and commerce and all sorts of ties between Europe and, and the Middle East. Uh, and my own family sort of experienced a lot of... Um, uh, the, the tumultuous uh, history of, of the dissolution of the, the Ottoman Empire as well. So part of my family came from Bulgaria, uh, what was Ottoman Bulgaria. And uh, when the, the Greeks uh, left, they, they settled near uh, where I grew up. Uh, part of my family came from Zmerna uh, with the Greek-Turkish population exchange uh, in 1923. And others later on from from Egypt as well. So when when uh, the nationalizing measures kicked in in the fifties and sixties, and and uh, essentially the, the the foreign communities, the, the Greeks, the, the French, the Italians, uh, decided to leave. Uh, so I, I I grew up in in a in a family in a, in a neighborhood where all these kinds of different backgrounds resulted in you know different. Uh, foods and, and smells and, and jokes that went over my head and, and, mm-hmm. and uh, all sorts of nicknames for people that were coming from different parts of the Eastern Mediterranean. 
Uh, and it was it was also the 90s, right, at the time when the, the Cold War had ended. Uh, and in Greece, we had an influx of, of ethnic Greeks uh, coming back from uh, Eastern Europe and, and the former Soviet Union, where, where they had fled after uh, during and after the civil war in the 40s and 50s. So a lot of communists uh, were seeking shelter in the Soviet Union and, and the Eastern European uh, countries at the time, and in the 90s would come back, bring their families, many of whom would had never been to Greece. They did not really speak Greek. So it, it was this interesting uh, time growing up, essentially, in, um, at, at that part of the world and, and sort of, you know, dealing and experiencing the, you know, the, the, the post-Ottoman kind of, of, of era in, in, in a way. Uh, but I, I mean, if you're a, a proper <laughs> uh, middle-class Greek student uh, or a teenager in the 1990s, you don't really dream of becoming a migration scholar, right? When you <laughs> grow up, so that, <laughs> that that came a bit a bit later. But that's that's broadly essentially the the, the background to all of this. That that mobility uh, and this understanding of, of migration as essentially, well, you know, part of life, right? This is yeah, something yeah. that that was always there. Uh, in the background, and I think I don't think, uh, I think I think most people growing up in the Eastern Mediterranean have similar stories, sure. uh, be it in Greece or Turkey or Lebanon or Egypt. This is something I think we share in that part of the world. Yeah, there's some interesting dynamics around movement and the the sort of the rhythms of movement, I guess, that are quite particular to to the Eastern Med. That, that... Correct, uh, and the, the the interplay of of politics in all of this, but also yeah. this kind of cultural understanding or this kind of affinities that, that you share with, with people uh, across the Mediterranean, right? This mm-hmm. kind of things that for me emerged only later when I started traveling, when I started living in other parts of, of the region that I, I fully came to realize this. Sure. So it would be remiss of me not to ask you then, as, as a child growing up in Greece in the 1990s, what was the dream you hinted at it, which makes me think there was a dream. What was it? <laughs> uh, well, gosh, um, yes, that's an interesting question. I think the dream for me was, well, um, uh, uh, it was, um, the dream at the time was, I think, exploring the world, sort of moving moving away, like seeing something else, seeing something different. Uh, so I, I, I think that's how... Okay. I made the decision of, of uh, stepping away, of, of leaving Greece. I uh, got a scholarship and, and actually enrolled at, at Yale uh, for my undergraduate degree in uh, 2002 mm-hmm. and did uh, economics and politics at the time, political science. So that fulfilled my, my dream at the time, sort of uh, involving myself in uh, U.S. academia as an undergraduate uh, and, and and working there, so I, I work closely with a, with a lovely scholar of IR and, and European politics called uh, Jolion Howard. Uh, and this was a time around uh, the decision to invade Iraq in 2003 sure. and the aftermath of that. So the Middle East was was very heavily featured in in most of the things we were doing at the time as well. Yeah, of course, makes a lot of sense. It's interesting that your dream was was to, to travel and to, to engage with the world. And mine was to become a professional footballer. And I was it really? certainly failed at that. Whereas you have, <laughs> have continued to thrive, Gerasimus. So congratulations there on that. There is still time. There, there is still time. <laughs> I fear uh, not. <laughs> but, um, so 
you you did that at, at Yale, and then then what happened? You decided that you wanted to carry on and explore this further, so so you came over to to the UK. I did. So uh, I did a master's. Uh, this two thousand six, two thousand seven. I did a master's at the LSE mm-hmm. uh, on uh, political economy, uh, and I think I mean the <laughs> the interesting thing there was I. I guess I was still very much in a in a U.S. kind of mindset where things are quite informal, and you get to to talk to professors in with their their first names and walk into their offices at any point. And I was a, uh, I think I was at Clement House at the LSE, and I saw uh, <laughs> Fred Halliday's office of all people, and yeah. I I never knew him, but I I remembered his his books from my my dissertation stuff at at, at Yale uh, the year before. Uh, so as as I, I knocked on his door, and as, as luck would have it, again he he was there somehow, and he <laughs> and the first thing he asked me was was where I was from. So he he sized me up really. I don't know if you've met uh, if you if you if you met Fred Halliday, but he was able to 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 size people up very fast. And he's like, oh, you're Greek, and you you definitely should come to this event we're hosting on on Turkish. On AKP, on AK, something about the AKP um, politics in, in Turkey, and I remember, I still remember, twenty years later, that I was quite quite surprised that I would, um, my my national identity sort of matters, right? Oh, sure. um, that b- because you're Greek, you should be interested in this, and this is something I hadn't come across before in in the US, and I, uh, of course, I went and I, I responded very well to that, and um, I guess that starts the the story a bit. More substantively, in, in the sense of working on the Middle East and, and looking at it not as a perhaps as, a, as an object of, of European power politics, uh, but more as, a, as as an entity in itself, if that if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of uh, sense. And I I returned to Greece for a few years. I worked as a researcher at the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Athens, mm-hmm. and this was a time when Euro Euromed was quite popular. The Euro Mediterranean. Yeah. Uh, process and all of this. So I I got to work on this a bit and slowly started uh, spending more and more time in in Jordan, in Egypt, uh, learning Arabic. Uh, And then that continued on up until 2010, 2011, when I I moved back for my PhD. I went back to to SOAS. Which is where you you started your PhD with, with Lali, I believe. Uh, Yes. So Lali Halili uh, was teaching a, a course I, I took, my, my very first source course I ever took was a nine o'clock uh, Monday morning class on political violence. And it was, it was again luck that I, I showed up for that course because I was really tempted to just slip in and find something that's a bit more convenient for a master's student to take, to take than, a, than a nine o'clock Monday morning course. But it was, a, it, it was where I, I met a, 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 a lot of, of colleagues that are now teaching elsewhere, teaching Middle East politics elsewhere in, in the UK and, and abroad. And a lot of people are now close friends as well. And it was it was it was a, one of those moments where life sort of changes a bit. Where um, coming from the LSE, coming from Yale, I was looking at things in a very positivist kind of way, a very mainstream kind of yeah. uh, fashion. And it was it was through Lale uh, that I got this exposure to you know uh, being more critical. Um, questioning your positionality, uh, looking at things from a, from a number of different lenses and, and, and looking at the politics of this. So it was a, it was a fascinating time. Uh, I bet. And 
And the, and the second person, perhaps the, the second course I took that really shaped me there was was Charles Tripp's course on the state, the state in the Middle East. Uh, Charles had this weekly two-hour lecture uh, on uh, various types of states in the Middle East. So the the neoliberal state, the frontier state, the militarized state, and so on and so forth. And he would pick a specific country each time for for him to unpack the concept and gives us give us the, the strengths and weaknesses of this. And I, I I remember thinking that this is it. Like this is this is what I, I really want to do with my life. And <laughs> it's a pity it took me about thirty years to realize it. But it was um, it was at that point when uh, things really uh, fit in my mind, and I decided to to do my best to stay in academia for as long as it would happen. Amazing. Uh, and it's not a surprise that it was a combination of Lali and Charles that would would take you in that that sort of trajectory of intellectual think, curiosity. Huh. Yeah, in a way, yes, absolutely, absolutely. They make they made for a very formidable couple as as supervisors, and they comp- complemented each other really, uh, really well. So it's really tricky to find two supervisors that that can play off each other. Uh, but but in my case, it it, it works. Um, uh, yeah, I'm 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 grateful to both of them. To be honest. Well, I'm sure many many other people are as well, and uh, I'm I'm somewhat jealous that you had that opportunity to work with them both so closely. But um, Girasimos, tell us a little bit about the thesis. I mean, I take it that was what went into your your 2018 book with Cambridge. Yes, uh, correct. Uh, the, well, the thesis. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, I did I did a second master's at SOAS, I did Middle East politics, uh, which allowed me to apply for a studentship uh, okay. to, to, to continue on the PhD. Um, and uh, my master's uh, dissertation was a piece on Tunisia that became my, my first peer review publication uh, in, in Mediterranean politics a couple of years ago. And um, I had worked as electoral elections observer uh, in Tunisia, uh, and I used that experience. And, and data collect there to produce this kind of political sociology analysis of, of Tunisia and uh, uh, the state under Ben Ali and how essentially Ben Ali was using um, uh, a narrative about Tunisia as a success story back then in order to have ordinary Tunisians uh, continue sort of spreading this rhetoric and policing this idea of Tunisia as a success story. A very kind of Gramscian, Foucauldian kind of approach. That essentially was going to be my PhD, to be honest with you. So I was I was using that kind of framework, but transposing it into Egypt. Uh, and I, I think you've talked to to Charles. So he, I think he mentioned how uh, for him, and I think for a lot of his students, Egypt is has been very central yeah. uh, to the study of of the Arab world and the Middle East. And this kind of assumption that well, if you understand Egypt, then you you understand what's going on in in the Arab world, which I think is a very <laughs> very sweet and very interesting kind of approach. So the the focus on Egypt was never questioned, I suppose, looking back. Uh, but the the thesis itself uh, had nothing to do. The proposal, at least, had nothing to do with migration. So it was a it was a project on a uh, sociological, political ethnography of the Muslim Brotherhood. So keep in mind, this is to 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was very drawn to to Gillian Shredler's arguments about moderation yep. and when and why do Islamist parties participate in electoral politics. So I wanted to really understand this essentially in the context of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Uh, and I was going to do a, a political ethnography of a couple of neighborhoods in, in Cairo, trying to understand essentially how do members of the Muslim Brotherhood 
um, understand political participation uh, and how do they how do they uh, perform this on their everyday kind of um, lives. Uh, so I did all this. I prepared. I did my readings. I got my upgrade into the second year. I was able to leave for fieldwork, and then I I hopped on a plane and I arrived in Cairo. I think in early early June 2013 mm-hmm. <laughs> to do a project on the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and again, as as luck would have it, uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, Sisi had other plans, I suppose. So the, a, a couple of weeks afterwards, uh, the, the coup happened. The, the coup at the time Egypt took place. Uh, I was I was living in a small flat near in, in Doki, uh, near Cairo University, and it was just a, a horrific time. Uh, but in terms of my trajectory, my professional kind of career, it meant that my my PhD was essentially dead in the water, right? Yeah. Uh, and I use that story to my for my students to to show to to demonstrate to them the importance of being flexible and versatile and not mm-hmm. engaged, not not putting all your eggs in in one basket. But it made for a for a very long summer, both in terms of the the violence that you could see like literally outside your doorstep and the, the horrific things that, that were happening in Egypt at the time, uh, but also this kind of urgent sense that, well, you need to find a new topic now, and uh, it needs to be something different. Uh, and by the end of that summer, the the the, uh, the, the topic changed into um, what would become, uh, what part of it became the Cambridge book, essentially. Uh, my, my, the politics of migration, or emigration, to be more accurate, in terms of uh, Egypt and its history from Nasser up until uh, Mubarak. It's fascinating, and I guess it's the sort of thing that happens to a, to a lot of people, this sort of shift, this fluidity of doing research on quote-unquote live topics, if you will. Um, I think so, and I think, I think we should be, I, I, I think, yeah, I think there, there needs to be more discussion of these things in terms of how uh, I, these unexpected events tend to, to shape uh, not just your fieldwork and access to people, but also larger projects, right? Yeah. So this is, but this is something that I think all of us tend to encounter at some point in our in our lives, more or less. Anyone working on Middle East politics, at the very least. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but for me, to be honest, Simon, I mean that that summer, I mean that that, that was formative in the sense of uh, the, the, the the essence of that book, the Cambridge book, can be really boiled down to like a single sentence or two, which is essentially how. Um, ordinary Egyptians' inability to leave the country and, and migrate and pursue employment abroad created set the stage for what would happen in 2011. Essentially, mm-hmm. so the the argument is that um, uh, domestic deteriorating domestic political economic conditions in Egypt, coupled with the inability of uh, Egyptians to move abroad as their uh, as others had done in the years before created this kind of uh, situation where um, 2011 was going to happen at some point. Yeah. So that w- that's the, the main gist of the book, and it really came out of discussions with people during that summer of 2013. So just tell us a little bit about the, the conceptual stuff that you play around with there and, and in, in later works. Cause you, you've touched on a couple of thinkers in the, in the course yeah. of our conversation thus far, but... Where did you get some of those ideas from? I mean, what's the, the sort of the intellectual genesis of your your theoretical approach here? The uh, the, the origin of this has to do a lot with kind of the 
the politics of, of migration in terms of how it's positioned in social sciences research. So I, I think it's still, unfortunately, valid today, but it was even more so about 10 or 15 years ago that migration, if you study IR or if you study comparative politics, migration isn't really a topic that you focus on. It's not really something that is on the top of someone's agenda. Even though it's so central to a lot of these states, I mean, look at Lebanon, uh, look at the Gulf, right? Or look at Egypt in terms of emigration. It's, it's central to all of these social and economic processes. And yet, I mean, I was, I was quite, quite surprised that if you study it in, in Europe or North America, it's usually about immigration. It's all about kind of how does migration from other places in the world affect us here in terms of security, bordering, citizenship, and all of this. So that was, uh, so my, my, uh, my hope was to essentially, um, find a, a narrative or find a framework that would allow us to move beyond kind of Eurocentric analysis of migration and try to explore things that are happening at, in, in what we call the global south now. Uh, and for this, uh, it, uh, for that book, uh, well, the, the dissertation uh, became two books that we can, we can talk about mm-hmm. if you want. Uh, but the, the Cambridge book was the comparative politics argument around the nature of, of authoritarianism. Yeah. And I borrowed from Jaszewski, uh, who has this lovely framework of how autocracies try to coerce, uh, legitimize, and co-opt, essentially. So I, I looked at all of these three uh, facets. And I looked at how migration actually played into the hands of both the Nasserite uh, regime in terms of restricting people's options to migrate, but also in terms of Sadat and Mubarak in how they they let people out and they encouraged migration again as a way of maintaining um, maintaining power in a way. Yeah. So that's 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 the underlying argument of of that book. Uh, specifically focused on on autocratic politics and, and labor emigration. You know? It sounds deeply biopolitical. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, yes, yes. Well, it turned out uh, absolutely so. It turned out uh, it turned out to be more positivist than I expected, perhaps. So the the book itself, the Cambridge book, uh, does engage in in process tracing, looks at it in a in a more positivist fashion, partly because I. Um, I was able to to make that argument. The data that I had collected at the time allowed me to to make a a causal argument, I felt at the time. So it was a a time in Cairo and in Egypt where people still uh, discussed politics. Uh, It was a very unique moment in time. Going back to my initial point about being lucky or things that happened by accident, um, that project could not have happened today. For instance, there was there's no there's no way. Uh, back then, people debated things. They would talk about Sadat. They would talk about Mubarak. They would discuss. They would open up. I I, I was able to find all sorts of statistical data on migration under Nasser, uh, left forgotten in in the basement at uh, the, the Ministry of Education. Things like this. Things that didn't really I didn't really expect, uh, and. Uh, I, I was able to draw on for for that book, so it's less it's less a, a, a Foucauldian biopower kind of argument and more a positivist kind of analysis of of the, the determinants of authoritarianism, if you mm-hmm. want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's a really interesting book. I, I I recommend it to to everyone. I think the thing that that struck me when I was reading it is that 
whilst positivist and dealing with sort of empirics, it is fundamentally concerned with movement of bodies. Correct. And there's that tension there, I think. And that that tension sort of comes out in some of your, your other work between an empirical focus and an empirical analysis that could broadly be identified as positivist mm-hmm. whilst being fundamentally concerned with the the sort of the biopolitical regulation of life, which is in some cases at odds with the positivist turn. Correct. Does that make Correct. sense? Am I articulating that, makes, that in an that appropriate makes, way? No, that makes ab- absolute sense. Uh, uh, and it, it, it has led to, I guess, uh, uh, some some criticism in terms of these arguments being rather cynical in a way. So if you look at them from a positivist lens, mm-hmm. a lot of the the arguments I'm I'm making can be seen as kind of cynical or power politics or or whatever. But at the end of at the, at the end of the day, you're you're absolutely right. I mean the the people I I admire uh, beyond, of course, Lalis and, and and Charles's work is are also people like Gillian Schwedler yeah. or uh, Laurie Brandt, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote the I think one of the, the fundamental texts about migration in the Middle East back in 2006, and I was I was drawn to that, and this is one of the the books that I always admire in the sense that she was also heavily invested in empirical unpacking of these processes across multiple countries of of the Middle East in terms of diaspora politics, yeah. but also quite concerned to make this as um, analytically uh, transparent and as uh, sort of methodologically clear as well, in a way. So this is the kind of work I, I look up to, in a way. Um, yeah, and they are good bits of scholarship to look up to, and I'm I'm sure <laughs> that, that people are also holding your work up as leading sort of leading texts in this area, as well they should be, because it is a <laughs> leading text in this area. But, um, you, you touched on the second book, and it would be remiss not to, not to delve deeper into it, even though I'm conscious that we've, we've not touched upon on the, the articles that you've done or the, the, um, the projects that you're working on. But I do want to touch about the, uh, touch on the, the Manchester book because I think it is excellent. So can you just finish the story of the two parts of the, uh, the research and how this sort of completes the second part of that PhD um, doubleheader, if you will? Uh, yes. So... Uh, yes, after after a year in in Cairo and, and traveling across uh, Egypt, essentially I, I was in, in in possession of quite quite a lot of material. I was I was very lucky uh, during that that field work year. Uh, I wrote up the thesis, de- defended it, uh, and um, a good co- senior colleague of mine um, mentioned at some point as I was debating which press I should send, I should, I should send a revised manuscript to. He said, "Well." <laughs> He said, "Well, one book is good, but you know what's better than one book? It's it's two books, <laughs> and perhaps you could divide up the the, the the monograph, the manuscript into two books rather than one. And it it was one of those suggestions that you know you make in like you know five seconds time, but it really took about <laughs> it took about a year of my life trying to do this. Um, the way I did this was to divide up the comparative politics argument mm-hmm. from the IR argument. The point is that, of course." In managing migration, Egypt uh, as a state relates very much to the, the social body. So it, it, there is there is an, an argument to be made about how the regime uh, tries to essentially consolidate power domestically 
uh, in terms of allowing the immigration of some people versus others and so on and so forth. But there is, if you are to complete the puzzle, this doesn't happen by itself. Migration by default involves at least two countries. And in doing this, Egypt um, was either uh, engaged in cooperative or coercive relations with other parts of the Middle East at the very least. So uh, the second book, the Manchester book, looks at the international relations component of this story mm-hmm. uh, and what I call what I call migration diplomacy. Uh, it looks at how Egypt was able to essentially uh, benefit uh, from uh, cooperative relations with a number of other countries, uh, namely Saudi Arabia, but, but others as well. Uh, but also how uh, Egyptian migration came to be um, a, a power uh, struggle, uh, a, a game uh, of sorts between Egypt and Libya, uh, Egypt and Jordan, uh, and other states. So that book essentially tries to unpack the, the IR component and look at how and when uh, migrants become instruments in these power games uh, with Egypt at the very center. And again, it is wonderful, really, really wonderful. I wonder, Gerasmus, if you can just quickly respond to a criticism that that people have made, not necessarily of your work in particular, but migration in IR gets sort of lost in the sort of the realm of high politics, and it it all mm-hmm. too often gets sort of dismissed as denying the agency of of individuals in a broader sort of structuralist account. I mean, how do you respond to those critiques and how how do we save the role of, of, of people from being a sort of an intellectual afterthought, if you will? That's fascinating. That, that's, that's, that's an excellent point to hear. I, um, my, my, my understanding reading, reading by works of IR is that it was always a low politics issue, which is really interesting. So, uh, for much of the 20th century, migration was seen as kind of, you know, something that doesn't really, that shouldn't really be studied at the same level as um, war and peace and alliances and all yeah. this kind of high politics stuff. So it's interesting how the narrative has changed over the last 10 years or so. And I think a lot of what's happened in, in the context of um, the Mediterranean and, and Syria has something to do with it. Yeah, uh, but in terms of the um, that, that criticism, which, which I completely uh, get, I would say that um, it, it is rather it is rather unfair in the sense that the study of migration at, at heart has to do with people that have the agency to to cross borders, essentially, and also our our work does highlight the the importance of migrant and diasporic communities as agents of of change in Middle East politics. So looking at Egypt uh, solely, the, the, you could only look at economic remittances, right? So migrant remittances yeah. and the importance that, that migration plays in, in sustaining um, certain, certain power structures in Egypt. And I, I see that as a, as a form of agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, diasporic protests, uh, ec- uh, extraterritorial voting, all of the things that, that fall into the framework of migrant and diaspora politics, I think, serve to highlight the extent to which uh, migrants have agency. Part of my work that I, I uh, part of work I've done a couple of years ago has to do with uh, repression, right? And 
the the policies of, of Middle East states towards citizens abroad as they try to to silence their voice. Uh, this kind of transnational authoritarianism that that we would call it. Uh, I I think that fundamentally serves to prove that migrants matter. Uh, Otherwise, these states would not be expending all this capital uh, trying to co-opt them, to control them, to silence them in a number of cases. Um, So that that would be my answer to something like this. Yeah, I think that's a a, a pretty solid answer and a pretty strong rebuttal to to what is... It does. Frustrating question, right? Oh, no, 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 no. But no, but I completely, I completely understand it, and it's also linked to to methodological debates yeah, in terms so. of how we work, how we work in international relations, and the type of actors we prioritize over over others. Um, my 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 assumption going in uh, back when I was starting the PhD has to do with uh, these untold stories, right, of people that uh, migrated either. Willingly or many times unwillingly. Uh, so my attitude was my my answer to this is well we we need to establish the broad parameters of what happened. We need to set the stage in terms of state actors, international organizations, broader themes at play, in order for us to then at a second stage uh, get to the get to the individuals, get to the groups, uh, tell the stories. But there's there's again only so much we can do as as international relations scholars too. So I, I, I don't think it's an unfair criticism, but I, I do think it can it can be nuanced somewhat as well. Sure. Sure. Well thank you for uh, for, for setting that out. We've been talking for a long time and we've not touched on your ERC stuff. So I wonder if to to wrap up this probably the first part of a double header to call back to your uh, <laughs> to your work would it be um, would it be possible just to get a quick teaser or a quick overview of, of the stuff that you're doing now, Gerasimus, and the sure. the ERC stuff that you're doing, which is absolutely fascinating and so very, very important? Uh, and then uh, sure. we can hopefully have a, a repeat performance and delve deeper into some of the articles and the other stuff that you've been doing. Absolutely. Uh, very quickly, I would say... Uh, this has to do with how things have changed over the last 10 years and how Egypt also has become a less hospitable place for social sciences research and fieldwork, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I consciously made the choice of, of moving uh, to, to a different part of, of the Middle East. And I was drawn to what was happening in uh, Lebanon and Turkey and, and Jordan. And I did a lot of work there in terms of the, the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, and essentially how uh, forced migrants and asylum seekers are, are commodified uh, for a number of reasons and by a number of actors, state and, and non-state actors alike. Uh, so the, the ERC grant ties into that type of process, uh, something like the EU-Turkey statement or the EU-Turkey deal of 2016 shows that uh, refugees and asylum seekers are matter geopolitically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we don't understand is uh, when when do states choose to use these these vulnerable communities as um, instruments of leverage in international relations? Uh, so why does Turkey do it, but not Jordan or Lebanon, right? So why, what explains this? What explains hostility versus cooperation, uh, or what, as I would call it, backscratching versus uh, blackmailing? And more importantly, perhaps for for um, Europe, 
is what determines success in a way. Yeah. Success in, in big commas in terms of this, because I don't think it's it's a matter of success or failure, but what um, makes a state yield to another state that is uh, blatantly using refugees in its uh, foreign policy. So that's the uh, that's part of the, the rationale behind the ERC, looking at states across the Middle East in an effort to compile uh, a data set on the instances of uh, coercion using refugees, trying to understand when when states do it, when do they decide to do it, and when do actually do they succeed in getting the outcomes that they sought uh, at the beginning. The second part, very quickly, has to do with Broadening, thing, broadening things up a bit beyond the Middle East. So that's what I'm currently engaged at, uh, kind of looking at processes, particularly in South and Southeast Asia, and trying to do, uh, try to move, move beyond looking at the Middle East by itself, but trying to find cross-regional similarities mm-hmm. with other parts, uh, be it Sub-Saharan Africa or Asia. Uh, and this has been intellectually stimulating in terms of how many similarities we find in terms of what Jordan and Lebanon uh, have done uh, in comparison to India, for instance. Yeah. So that's that's what I'm, I'm drawn to right now, in a way. Simon. Fascinating. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that in hopefully the <laughs> not-too-distant future. But, Jerasmus, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. There's so much to, to dive into, and um, I feel we've only scratched the surface here. But a huge thank you for your time just now. Thank you very much for having me. It was, a, it was a joy. It was a pleasure. Thank you. A huge thanks to Gerasimus for his time just now. It's a real pleasure talking with him about his work and all the many wonderful things that he has done, is doing, and no doubt will do in the not-too-distant future. Certainly a very busy chap. As always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>